Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a cucumber. Poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber. Signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Touch-free QR code payments. No seller fees until 2021. Not applicable to PayPal here transactions. Other fees may apply. Shop safe with PayPal. With the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming, Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details. Because I'm not... A lizard, I'm not from under a rock. It came out of broken China. You see? It came out of my mother. And in a rage, I went right back in. For seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you. My murderous son is one of our arguments. I cut off her head and, I'm, and I humiliated her corpse. So there. Episode 3 of a three-part series on Edmund Emil Kemper III. If you haven't listened to Episodes 1 and 2, go back and listen before you begin this episode. So before we get into Ed's murder campaign, let's review a few things about Ed's childhood and his stay at a Tescadero. We'll wrap up this series by discussing all of the various physiological and psychological factors that may have contributed to creating this monster that is Ed Kemper. So far, we have explored Ed Kemper's troubled childhood. Ed's mother, Clarnell, was abusive, she was an alcoholic, and she likely had borderline personality disorder. Clarnell's impact on her son's developing psyche was profound. During the first few months of a newborn's life, the mother-infant pair bonding is regulated by the release of a hormone called oxytocin. And oxytocin comes from both mom and from the baby. Oxytocin levels are often low in women who have borderline personality disorder. So what happens as a result? Well, if mom has inadequate levels of oxytocin, then breastfeeding becomes more difficult. And there is this process of um, mom recognizing her her infant's smell or odor and then preferring that, that odor imprints on her. And she then prefers her baby's smell to all others. And the same thing goes for the baby. As the baby, um, the baby gets used to the odor of the amniotic fluid 
and then mom's nipples have a similar, they have a similar odor. So that attracts, that attracts the baby to her breasts. And that imprinting happens for the baby as well. Attempts at nursing during the first hour after birth or the first hour of this infant's life will cause these huge surges of oxytocin. And oxytocin, well, huge surges of oxytocin for both mom and for baby. And oxytocin is what really helps mom and baby bond, right? So in the hours, days, weeks following birth, mom will continue to produce oxytocin when she's nursing, and so some of that oxytocin will be transferred to the infant through the breast milk. She'll also continue to produce oxytocin not just from nursing, but also just from holding baby close. So the more, the more mom holds the baby, the more oxytocin. So baby is also making oxytocin in response to nursing and response to sustained physical contact. So it's incredibly important during these first, you know, days, weeks, months of this baby's life that there's a lot of physical bonding. And, you know, you don't have to breastfeed, although it's very healthy and that sort of thing, but you don't have to breastfeed. But the contact between caregiver and baby is super, super, super important because oxytocin is the hormone that helps with bonding. So it's also how um, sexual partners bond following a sexual encounter is there are release, there's releases of oxytocin that bond those people together. The other thing that can happen is oxytocin can also intensify memories of bonding gone bad. And this is evident in cases where men have poor relationships with their mothers and subsequently with women. And this is according to a 2016 article in Live Science. Research also indicates that alcohol, so any kind of the presence of alcohol in the breast milk, that alcohol will inhibit suckling-induced oxytocin release. So the levels of oxytocin are then directly correlated to the levels of a couple of neurotransmitters hormones, um, these are dopamine and serotonin. So because mood, mental health are dependent upon these neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, um, it's incredibly important that that all the levels stay where they should be. Dopamine is the feel-good hormone, and serotonin helps to stave off anxiety and depression. So dopamine is the, the hormone that gets that's involved in addiction, and it's also the it's also the hormone or neurotransmitter, it's, it's considered both, the neurotransmitter that's found in the street drug MDMA or ecstasy, or molly, whatever they call it. The ecstasy causes the release of huge amounts of dopamine and serotonin, so that's why people have this euphoric feel-good feeling after taking something like that. Now, other types of addictions also produce levels of dopamine, um, because dopamine is tied to the reward-pleasure pathway in your brain. So it can be tied to food addictions. It can be tied to cigarettes, drug addictions, alcohol. All of these have to do with the um, mitigation of dopamine. So the bond between Clarnell and her son was stormy from the start. And at a very young age, Ed began to have morbid sexual fantasies. And these were often directed at his mother. What I was fantasizing about I was building up big loads of frustration inside, big loads of, uh, of hatred. So it's pretty obvious that Clarnell really did a number on Ed. 
But what role did Ed's father, E.E., have on Ed's development? Well, remember that E.E. was a World War II veteran who fought on the front lines. And in those days, the trauma of war was not recognized as it is today. So PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, which I think they're trying to um, get rid of the disorder part of it because post-traumatic stress is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. So PTSD back then was referred to as battle fatigue. Soldiers were encouraged to get married, start a family, and forget about what happened during the war, right, if it only were so easy. Today we have not a great understanding, but a better understanding of how violent trauma impacts the psyche of our vets. So PTSD can manifest itself in a number of ways. So there can be intrusive recollections of the traumatic event. Um, There's hyperarousal of the sympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight response, fight, flight, or freeze, right? So when you are scared, angry, whatever, um, your heart rate starts to increase, right? And it feels like the the heart, your heart's going to beat out of your chest. And so that's speeding up the delivery of blood to your muscles, to your adrenal glands, to places where you need it, and you're decreasing the blood flow to places where you don't need it. You don't need to digest food. You don't need to make urine during these times. But so your body stays in this hyper-aroused state. So you're almost like in this constant sympathetic response, right? And if you know how you feel when you're really angry or really scared, you don't want to feel like that all the time. That would be awful. Over time, With PTSD untreated, the amygdala starts to increase in volume. The amygdala is um, a structure in the brain that processes fear, anger, pleasure. And so the amygdala in, in folks with PTSD is increased. Also, interestingly, the amygdala is very sensitive to testosterone. And so testosterone will kind of dull the effects of the fear center in the amygdala, right? So it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? There's another area of the brain um, that's involved in PTSD or damaged, I I, you could say, in PTSD. And this is an area called the hippocampus. The hippocampus will decrease in volume. The hippocampus is involved in the storage and recall of memories. And in PTSD, the storage and recall is disrupted. So I think the best way to explain that is if someone has PTSD, okay, so say... Say it was from, um, you know, a a war-type situation. Now, you come back from the war. You know that when you're sleeping in your bed, that the likelihood of the, you know, the enemy shooting at you in the middle of the night is pretty much, you know, not there. However, any sound that sounds even somewhat similar to the sound of... um, gunshots, bombs, that sort of thing, is going to trigger the your sympathetic nervous system, that fear response. And so what happens is, um, because the hippocampus has kind of started to decrease in volume, the brain no longer is able to, to assess out the differences between new memories of something that wasn't part of the trauma and these old memories of trauma. The final part of the brain that's affected in, well, there's lots more, but the final big part of the brain that's affected in PTSD is the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex will, and this is the last part of your brain to develop. It's, you know, usually not fully developed until you're about 25. This is why 
We don't put middle-aged women on the front lines of war. We put 19, 20, 21-year-old men on the front lines because, because the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed, because they have these massive surges of testosterone, which is dulling the amygdala's response to the fear. And so the prefrontal cortex is your impulse control, and it also helps to regulate your emotional responses like fear that are triggered by the amygdala. So the problem with the prefrontal cortex is that um, it can inhibit the fear responses that are triggered by the amygdala. Well, so what does all this have to do with Ed? Well, parents who have PTSD, untreated PTSD, will have, can have, not always, but can have a negative impact on children without realizing that that's what's happening. Studies published by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs indicate that 33% of Vietnam vets with PTSD have engaged in some sort of family violence. So prior to the Vietnam War, World War II vets were diagnosed with combat stress reaction or battle fatigue. Okay? And there's not a lot of the, the furthest information I could find about family violence and PTSD was Vietnam vets. Um, the VA over the years has done an extraordinary amount of research into the effects of PTSD. And one of the things they found is that children of war vets, war vets that have PTSD, often exhibit one of three personalities. And so what we'll see is that, um, that Ed possibly exhibits two of these three. The first one is the over-identified child. And the over-identified child might feel and behave just like their parent as a way of trying to connect with the parent. Such a child might show many of the same symptoms as the parent with PTSD. The second is the emotionally uninvolved child. And the emotionally uninvolved child gets little emotional help. This results in problems at school, depression, anxiety, worry, fear, and relationship problems later in life. The final um, personality, which I do not think fits Ed, is the rescuer. Um, the rescuer child takes on an adult role to fill in for the parent with PTSD, so the child acts too grown up for his or her age. Well, it's clear that Ed was deeply affected by his parents' mental illnesses and by their violent relationship. He had no coping mechanisms and did not know how to process his emotions or deal with uncomfortable feelings and urges. Remember that Ed spent his teen and early adult years locked away in California's Atescadero State Hospital for the criminally insane, or male sex offenders, um, after he murdered his paternal grandparents. So Ed spent his teen years, when he should have been experimenting with his peers, among sexual deviants. We know that this further fueled his sexually morbid fantasies. When Ed was released from Atescadero in 1969 at age 21, his doctors had one directive for him. Stay away from Clarnell for the rest of his life. Instead, he was paroled to his mother. He began working for the Division of Highways, um, and eventually he was able to move out of his mother's home for a while. He bought a motorcycle and he wrecked it twice. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about the possibility that he had um, sustained a head injury in one of these wrecks. And if he was under 25, I mean, a head injury can mess up your brain if you're over 25, but it has more of an impact if your brain is still developing. So if he had a head injury, what could that have triggered as well, right? So Ed had lots of opportunities when he was at a Tescadero and in the short time that he was free to engage in self-improvement. He was offered university classes while at Tescadero, and then during his parole, it would have been easy for him to go to the local community college and then transfer to a university because he was so very intelligent. 
In Margaret Cheney's book, The Co-Ed Killer, she speculates that Ed knew that if he worked hard and made it in the academic world, that he would lose his scapegoats, his belief that everyone failed him. Ed exhibits an inability to take responsibility for his own actions. He's always blaming his mistakes on others. He also has a very inflated sense of self, although he speaks of himself as if he has no self-esteem. It's obvious in jailhouse interviews that he feels very differently about that. So let's listen to just a, a quick clip of Ed discussing how he found out that he actually has a high IQ. And ironically, I have a high IQ. I didn't know that till I was locked up the first time for murder. I always thought I was a little missing up here, a little short. Uh, because I was always called stupid, I'm called slow, don't you think when you do things. That was the problem. I wasn't thinking when I did things. I just did by rote, I did by memory, I did by example. And I had absolutely no faith in myself at all. I had no interaction going on in my own mind. I was not a thinker. I was not an individual. I had a teacher in the ninth grade who changed all that. He made me think. He would not tolerate my not thinking. He was an art teacher. And it was a devastating experience for me because there were gears in my head that were just rusty and they were barely moving or not at all. And that's when I found out that's what the state of my mind's functioning was. I didn't think. To the point of he points at a stapler on his desk and says, what does that say? And I looked at it and I said, silver line. He says, look again. And he's, he's raving at me. I look and it said swing line. All I had to do was look at it and read it. But I glanced at it and threw it back at him out of panic. So he made me think. And he gave me puzzles to work out in school in my class where I had to resolve these to continue on with the class. I had to think. I had to use abstracts. And after that started, that became fascinating to me. So I got more and more involved in thinking and about my surroundings and things like that. But by then I was locked up. But what was your relationship with you? So when Ed was released from a Tescadero, he felt like, because of what he learned there, he could make his mother, Clarnell, a better mother. Quote, I kept trying to push her toward where she would be a nice motherly type and quit being such a damned, manipulating, controlling, vicious beast. End quote. It is difficult, if not impossible, to change someone else. Ed blamed a Tescadero. He blamed the California Youth Authority, he blamed them for failing to cure him, and he blamed his mother for making him sick to begin with. When Ed was arrested for the murder of his grandparents, he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. But is it possible that Ed actually had childhood schizophrenia? The symptoms associated with childhood schizophrenia typically begin between ages 7 and 13, and they include things like severe anxiety and this could be due to fear of threatening hallucinations or delusions, difficulty relating and keeping friends, withdrawing and becoming increasingly isolated, trouble sleeping, irritability or depressed mood, lack of motivation, strange behavior, and substance abuse. Well, a lot of these seem to apply to Ed. The problem with the diagnosis of childhood schizophrenia is that it was not recognized as a separate mental illness until 1980. So in addition to the obvious psychopathy, which is a personality disorder, not a mental illness, Ed likely has a blend of several mental disorders. Narcissistic personality disorder. So people with narcissistic personality have an exaggerated sense of self-importance. They're absorbed by fantasies of unlimited success and they seek constant attention. 
the narcissistic, the narcissistic personality is oversensitive to failure and often complains of multiple somatic sy- symptoms. And so that means physical illnesses, that kind of thing, stomach aches, headaches, you know, pains. They're prone to extreme mood swings. Um, and these mood swings go between self-admiration and insecurity. And they also tend to exploit interpersonal relationships. And that definition comes from Mental Health America. Ed may have also had reactive attachment disorders. Individuals with RAD display callous, unemotional traits that can include behavior problems and cruelty towards people or animals. That definition comes from the Mayo Clinic. And maybe Ed had schizoid personality disorder. Schizoid personalities are introverted, withdrawn, solitary, emotionally cold and distant. They're often absorbed with their own thoughts and feelings and are fearful of closeness and intimacy with others. And that definition comes from Mental Health America. Sometime between 1969 and 1972, Ed had become engaged to a young woman from a nearby town, but ultimately did not marry her. They never had a sexual relationship, for he viewed himself as too much of a dork. He once said that a man would be a fool to marry a woman smarter than he. He did have one failed attempt at sex with a living woman, but he was unable to have an orgasm. Now, I read somewhere, and I can't find it now, but I read somewhere that Ed had a very small penis. And a small penis happens to, seems to be, and I could be wrong, but it seems to be one of those recurrent traits that you find among sexually motivated serial killers. In the years following a Tescadero, Ed claims that his relationship with his mother picked up right where it left off when he was 14. In Margaret Cheney's book, Ed is quoted to say, quote, my mother and I started right in on the horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious, end quote. His mother would introduce Ed to girls from the university who Ed found ugly and awkward instead of the petite, pretty co-eds that he found attractive. Clarnell thought these girls were too good for him. That's nice, huh? I think most mothers would think that no woman is good enough for her son, right? I have a son, and it's hard to imagine any woman being good enough for him. And remember that during these years, um, Ed had taken to driving, and he had started picking up hitchhikers, partly to practice his social skills, so he would pick up both male and females. One of the issues that Ed had, is, Ed had when he got out of a Tescadero is that he was very different from others his age because he was locked up when the hippie movement began. He appeared to onlookers as a square, and, and that's you know an old-time term for dork or nerd or whatever, and he had difficulty relating to his peers and to the shifting gender roles. In Santa Cruz, Um, the University of Santa Cruz, it was a co-ed campus, and a lot of the girls would move off campus, but there was no public transportation. And so to get where they needed to go, they would hitchhike. And if you listen to any true crime podcast, you you will know that don't hitchhike because it's dangerous, but that hitchhiking was really common in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. So let's listen to what Ed thought of um, driving and, and picking up hitchhikers. I traveled a lot because I'd been locked up for five and a half years. I had never had a license. Well, I just gotten a license when I got locked up the first time, a Montana license. And, um, uh, so I was free. The driving around was a, a way to exhibit that freedom, to demonstrate it, to get the cobwebs out of me. When I first got out, I loved to drive. I always did love as a kid to drive. 
I started driving when I was 10 or 12 years old, but I got a license when I was 15 up in Montana, and then I got locked up and then uh, here in California, and I got out, got a license, and I just started driving. And that was my main hobby, I'd say. And I saw a lot of people out hitchhiking, and I didn't select girls to pick up. I picked up anybody who wanted a ride. And over that whole three-year period, it was the same way. If someone needed a ride, I picked them up. Unless specifically, I was looking for someone to do in. So in 1970, Ed had been estranged from his father. I mean, after all, he did murder um, his, his paternal grandparents. But in 1970, Ed went looking for his father, and he hadn't seen or heard from him in five years. He was able to meet up with him at a diner, and they had lunch together. And Ed said that E.E. E. had forgiven him for murdering his paternal grandparents. It does not appear, however, that he and E.E. E. maintained a relationship beyond this. Ed's murder campaign lasted, with the exception of his paternal grandparents, lasted from 1972 to 1973. So he was age 24, 25. Before we get into the murder campaign, I just want to make a quick note that although the victims, of course, are the most important part of the story and should never be forgotten or should never be taken lightly, uh, the purpose of this particular podcast is to look at the factors that caused somebody like Ed Kemper to do what he did. Okay, so we're not going to spend as much time talking about the victims as um, would on maybe some of the other true crime podcasts out there. So between May of 1972 and February of 1973, so that's just 10 months, Ed killed six young women. He did not just kill them. He dismembered the women and he engaged in necrophilia. He would keep the heads of the women for a period of time so that he could continue to use them for oral sex. On Sunday, May 7, 1972, Ed went cruising and he picked up two young women, Mary Ann Pesci and Anita Luchase. They were hitchhiking from Fresno State College to Stanford University. Mary Ann was well-traveled and athletic. Anita was wholesome, having grown up on the family farm. Ed's perception of what happened or what was going on with the girls when he picked them up is interesting in a very delusional way. So we're going to listen to a couple different clips from a couple different interviews that Ed is describing this first, these first kills. And I'm picking up young women and I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of a thing. First, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching, where I could act out, and I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car, hidden. And this craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides, this fantastic passion. Uh, it was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is. And as you adjust to that psychologically and physically, you take more and more and more. It's the same process. So it finally came down to the thing of, do I dare bring this gun out? Already realizing if that gun comes out, something has to happen. It was going to happen. 
I didn't see it then, but it was going to happen. I was playing a dangerous game with a loaded gun that got us all. In this next clip, Ed is describing Mary Ann Pesci. There was a draw. There was a draw to the young lady that was haunting. I'm not saying I had compassion toward her when I talked to her. I tried to remember what we talked about. And in fact, I think what I said about her was is that she epitomized what really drove me. She was a haughty young lady. She's kind of stuck up, distant. I look back on it and I see a girl that was not beautiful. She was not plain. She was somewhere in between. And she was caught up in that beauty thing, like kids in the valley are, okay? Valley girls trying to make something of themselves and exploit little attributes they have and to downplay other ones. And she was playing a little Miss Distant with me. And her friend was very open and very, her roommate was very open and very a country girl talking and stuff. And it's sad because the Pesh was the, uh, Marianne was the uh, expert at hitchhiking. She had half her life in Europe. She'd hitchhiked around Europe. Uh, she'd done it in the United States. She was good at it. She didn't want to get in the car. The other girl, Anita Luchessa, wasn't a hitchhiker. She'd been raised by her family, don't do things like that. That's totally out of line. And her friend talked her into it. And once she got into it and she saw how much fun it was and they meet the different people and they talk with people, that by the time they're leaving Berkeley, right, it's all about who gets the front seat and who gets the back seat. So she, she, uh, you know, she opened the door and asked where uh, I was headed. And it says Stanford right on there, the sign they were holding up. And I said, I'm going to Palo Alto. I can drop you off. Oh, great. And she jumps in, grabs her stuff, jumps in, opens the back seat up for her friend, who's standing there looking at me long and serious about whether or not, because I could tell at the time, she knows better than to get in. Single adult. It's a coupe instead of a four-door car, so she cannot get out other than through the front seat. So that's all the warning signs of not getting in with a single, you know, in that kind of a situation. Uh, all of the things were wrong about it. But when I drove up, I pulled that little stunt of looking at my watch. You know, do I have time to pick them up? And you wouldn't believe how much effect that kind of thing has. And when she kept staring at me and looking, looking for something wrong in my eyes, I gave this look back like, I don't understand. Why, why are you looking at me like this? I gave her that back, and she says, oh, this guy's a dork. He's innocent as hell. She gets in. Okay, we're driving along, and I'm looking at this young lady in the rearview mirror. And I look back at it years later, and I'm saying, she kept looking me back, too, right in the eyeballs. I'm wearing dark glasses, but they're not totally dark. And I'm realizing now that she could see me looking at her, and she was looking right back at me. And instead of saying something to me, like, what are you looking at? Or, hey, maybe you ought to drop us off or something like that. She just kept looking back at me, and I'm looking at her, and she keeps looking at me. I'm thinking she's playing this little game. It's... Uh, it's not really teasing, so to speak. It's just this little psychological game back and forth that men and women do sometimes. The young girl in the front, uh, Anita, was uh, at one point in the, in, the, in the driving, and I'm sure they were doing little looks at each other and little comments that I didn't pick up because I'm driving and looking for places to go. But uh, somewhere in that communication, she gave me this sexy little look, you know, like, oh, boy, you're a pretty good-looking guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And... Uh, I smiled back at her, but not this hungry, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd like to get down with you kind of thing. It was just I smiled back at her, and I saw it for what it was. It's an 18-year-old girl that's feeling her oats. She's not doing anything wrong. It's, it's sad, and it's real pathetic. But some of this stuff was, I was getting real caught up in this girl in the back seat. You know, I was uh, 
she was, you know, to me at that point, she was really beautiful. She had the most incredible blue eyes, right? She had this really shiny black hair that was turning me on. So Ed drives the girls off into an isolated area, and he locks Anita in the trunk and takes Marianne into the woods where he uh, rapes and kills her. So then he has to go back and tell Anita what's happened. I said, your friend got smart with me and I hit her. I think I broke her nose. You better come help. She's about to die. Why, do, why does she have to know that? I couldn't deal with telling her that. And when I attacked her, she didn't at first realize what was happening. It didn't go through. She had very heavy coveralls on. It knocked her right up into the lid of the car, but it didn't pierce the clothing. So it wasn't that swell a knife anyway. I went out and bought a, a pawn shop, a huge knife. And uh, I kept on just mindlessly attacking. She falls back into the trunk. I just killed a young woman. I slammed down the lid of the trunk. She isn't dead. She's dying. And I panicked. I thought, I just locked the car keys in it because I can't find them in my pocket. Oh, my God, I locked them in the trunk. I'm kicking on the trunk lid and yanking on it. Oh, no, I don't believe this. I started to run, and I tripped over the gun that I'd had in my pants that I had totally forgotten was there. I stopped. I said, stop and think. I collected my wits. Check all your pockets. I picked the gun up. I stuck it back in my pants, now remembering I had one. I checked all my pockets, and there's the keys in the back pocket. I never put them in my back pocket. Ed takes the now-dead girls into his home. He undressed them, dissected their bodies. He decapitated the young women, and he kept their heads, eventually disposing of them in a ditch. Mary Ann's body was not found until August, and I'm not sure that Anita's body was ever found. September 14, 1972. Ed picked up Aiko Ku, a 15-year-old who was on her way to dance class. She quickly realized she was in trouble and tried to escape, but was unsuccessful. Ed taped her mouth shut, and he tried to suffocate her by putting his fingers into her nostrils. That failed. Ed then raped and strangled her with her scarf. He placed her body into the trunk of the car, and he went to a bar for drinks. He brought her body to his house and dissected her and had sex with her severed head. Just as a side note, um, on September 16, 1972, Ed visited a court-appointed attorney who stated that there was nothing wrong with him. During this visit... Ed still had the head of Aiko Ku in the trunk of his car. He disposed of her head and her hands in separate locations, and very little of Aiko Ku was ever found. Local universities began to warn female students to stay in their dorms at night and not to hitchhike. If they must hitchhike, they should only accept rides from folks with university stickers. Well, Ed had an all-access university sticker, courtesy of his mother, Clarnell who worked as an administrative assistant for the campus provost. The crimes, are, it, it goes from, uh, from May to May September, 7th. May 7th, Sunday, to Thursday, September 14th. Then it hops over to January, right? And then to February. It's speeding up. It's coming to a head. It's getting to where, uh, it wasn't a cyclical thing, but it was coming to where uh, it was coming more often. By this time, Ed had moved back in with his mother, and by January 8, 1973, he picked up a girl named Cindy Shaw. Cindy was a, um, a Cabrillo College student or Cabrillo College student who lived off campus with a girlfriend. 
Ed drove Cindy to a wooded area, shot her with his 22, put her body in his trunk, and drove back to his mother's. On January 9, 1973, Ed had sex with Cindy's lifeless body. He dismembered her body in his mother's bathtub, kept her severed head, but threw the rest of her remains off a cliff where they were found the next day. After a few days, Ed buried Cindy's head in his mother's garden, facing up towards her room. And he did this, he said, um, because he always, his mother always thought people should look up to her. Right, sick. Around this time, Santa Cruz was home to another serial killer named Herbert Mullen. As fate would have it, Ed and Herbie were in an adjacent cell for, cell for a bit. Um, one of Herbie's victims, 24-year-old Mary uh, Guilfoyle, was found around this time and was attributed to the co-ed killer. This infuriated Ed because the fact that a sloppy, careless murderer was operating Ed's, in Ed's territory just really, really made him mad. February 5th, 1973, after a fight with his mother, he stormed out ready to kill and later stated that the next good-looking girl he saw would die. Ed picked up 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 21-year-old Alice Liu. Rosalind was on her way to an on-campus lecture. Alice was on her way to campus to do some research and then attend her evening class. Ed turned to Alice in the back seat and he shot her several times, but she didn't die right away. Ed then shot Rosalind point blank and went to a cul-de-sac where he put the bodies of where he put the bodies of the girls into the trunk of his car. He later he later beheaded them and had sex with their heads. Ed dumped the bodies of Rosalind and Alice in Eden Canyon in Alameda County, where they were discovered on February fifteenth. The women's heads were found later off of a highway south of San Francisco. Following the murders of Rosalind and Alice, Ed became paranoid and he started disposing of trophies that he had kept, items that belonged to the victims. It was about a week before Easter weekend, and it was then that Ed decided that he had to kill his mother or more co-eds would die. It was springtime. It was April. Uh, and for two months, I hadn't killed. I said, it's not going to happen to any more girls. It's got to stay between me and my mother, and it's got to... I can't get away from her. We're still fighting. She's still belittling me. She's still I'm like a puppet on a string, and I entertain her. She knows all my buttons, and I dance like a puppet with that pain. And it had even gotten physical to where I had physically grabbed her and thrown her onto her bed, trying to emphasize a point that she's threatening to kill her. So here I pick up these two young ladies in Berkeley on Ashby Avenue. One has flowers in her hand. The teeth of the dolls, they're in granny dresses, and they're hitchhiking, a couple of real experts. I want to see how together I am, if I can resist this temptation. And they get in my car. They want to go one way. I know they need to go the other. If they go the way they're insisting on, we're headed right back out to where the first two co-eds were murdered. And I'm saying to myself, oh my God, all i got to do is relax, and they'll take me to their death. I've got the gun in the car, the same one I've been doing it. I insisted, as gently as I could, I took them where they needed to go, to their college. That was one week before I murdered my mother. I said, she's got to die, and I've got to die, or girls like that are going to die. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party, she got soused, she came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that, I got, came out. I walked up to her bed. She's laying there reading a paperback. 
as many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. I looked at her. I said, no. I said, good night. And I knew I was going to kill her. On April 20th, 1973, Ed killed his mother with a claw hammer while she was sleeping. He slashed her throat, eventually decapitating her, and he placed her um, larynx in the, her, her uh, vocal cords, her throat, in the garbage disposal. But every time he tried to turn the garbage disposal on, it would throw her larynx back out. Ed's bloodlust had not been satiated, so later that next day, Ed invited his mother's friend, Sarah Hallett, over for dinner. When she arrived, he strangled her to death with Ikoku's scarf. Ed had sex with her corpse that night. One of the things that came out later um, when Ed was under truth serum, it came out that he had um, had sex with his mother's head, that he had put her head on a bookshelf and was throwing darts at it and yelling at it. But this whole truth serum thing really very interesting. Truth serum is sodium um, pentothal, and basically what it does is it slows the brain down to such a degree that you're that you can no longer lie. And so I'm going to play now a clip of Ed describing the his experience with the truth serum. So my life, I could see every aspect of my life, my crimes, um, who I was, how I really felt about things without any defensive or protective accoutrements was all gone. And uh, it was fascinating to me. I was uh, semi-conscious. Uh, well, actually, I was conscious. I just, you know, I couldn't get up and move around a lot. And uh, at the end of the two hours, I didn't want to stop. I wanted to just keep on with this. I hadn't gotten to the crimes themselves, the current set of crimes, but uh, I was kind of oriented around other things related to my life. And I asked to continue on. The doctor didn't want to, so I insisted. So he sh they were using an IV, and they shot me up with another two-hour batch of this stuff. And uh, as soon as he was done with what he wanted to do, uh, he got up and left. He had an appointment. It had gone longer than he planned on it. He had to leave. My lawyer had to go. So I'm stuck with these two deputies and, and a, uh, a registered nurse watching me until I come down off of this stuff. Well, when the doctor left, he decided to give me a shot of medicine to snap me out of this, is the way he put it. And I asked him what it was, and he said it was methadrine, <laughs> hospital-grade methadrine, speed. And I've asked doctors since then, both medical doctors and psychiatrists, if that was an appropriate action, and they said, absolutely not. They should have let me sleep it off. Just let it course through my body and let it go away. By amplifying with the methadrine, it is suggested that the doctor knew full well it would put me through hell. It amplified everything I was feeling. It got me really drove. And for two days after that, they were trying to scrape me off the ceiling. On April 21st, 1973, Ed left town in Sarah's car, and then he rented a separate car for fear of being discovered. He dropped off Sarah's car to repair shop, pretending that it needed maintenance. He then drove 18 hours, stopping only for gas, no-dose, and soda. So no-dose, I don't know if they even make it anymore, but it's basically caffeine pills that will keep you awake. 
not a good thing. He got to Colorado. Um, at one point, he was stopped for speeding, but he just paid the fine and went on. And I think it made Ed angry that no one was looking for him. So he stopped in Pueblo, Colorado, and he called the Santa Cruz Police Department. Ed had to call several times to prove that it wasn't a prank, and he then told them where he was. One of the police officers that Ed knew from hanging out at a bar called the Jury Room ended up taking the call um, and got on the phone with Big Ed, and this is his version of what happened. On the phone, and we, uh, we started talking. I, I could tell that something wasn't right. He was in Pueblo, Colorado. He was in a phone booth, and... Uh, he hadn't had any sleep for several days, and he said he, he had uh, done something really bad. He said that uh, he had killed his mother and a friend of hers. He said that they were at his house, and uh, he asked me if I knew Mickey and Luffy, and I said yes. And he says, well, my house is hard to find, Mickey knows how to find it very easily because he had been out there and had confiscated a gun. Officers contacted Detective Alufi at his home. I'm standing there getting all this information and giving all this information. And I have this tremendous feeling of all of the blood just rushing out of my body. It was just, oh my God, this is unreal. One of the deputies broke the back window, which is on the other side of the sliding glass door. And then we started looking to see if we could locate the bodies in the closet. We pulled back a sheet and we saw some hair and some blood. Then Big Ed Kemper made a startling confession. He made comments to Jim Connor on the telephone that he had killed all of the co-eds too. Taken into custody, 24-year-old Edmund Kemper would then reveal an extraordinary and sickening tale. Ed's done a lot of interviews over the years. Um, you can find video of these interviews on YouTube. Um, I'll post some links to them on my website as well. But one of the things that fascinates me about people like Ed Kemper, about these sexually motivated serial killers, is the act of necrophilia. I mean, at what point does the brain become so disconnected that raping a corpse seems like a reasonable thing to do? Necrophilia is categorized in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Illnesses, 5th um, edition. So necrophilia is categorized as a paraphilic disorder. Author Dr. Jesse Baring talks about various paraphilias in his book, Perv, the Sexual Deviant, and All of Us. Dr. Baring asserts that paraphilias are the result of a type of sexual imprinting. So he gives an example of a young boy being um, sexually aroused at the upskirt site of one of his mother's friends while he was crawling around under the table. He then developed a paraphilia for a certain type of amputee. So women that had... Um, the leg from below the knee down amputated. So the paraphilia came from the fact that he was sexually excited um, by his mother's friend, but that his mother's friend had a cast that covered her lower leg. This early, express, this early experience was interpreted by the boy's developing brain as an amputee. 
So remember that Ed's isolation at a young age, he had morbid fantasies involving everyone around him being inanimate objects. What I was fantasizing about, I was building up big loads of frustration inside, big loads of, uh, of hatred because I had no outlet for it. I should have developed outlets, but I didn't know how at that time. So the outlets that developed themselves or I developed without knowing it um, were fantasies about um, me being the last. I, I got that out of a school book, this thing of being the last person alive on the world. And, and the, the thing that was posed to me in this textbook was it was a, a social studies. And it was meant to play upon the loneliness youngsters can feel. And that's a very uncomfortable feeling. And you can't have love and you can't have adventure and you can't have excitement without being able to share it with other people because that's where a lot of the dimension comes from. Okay, so they pose this thing. I mean, well, what if you were the last person in the world and you had all these cars and airplanes and boats and ships and, and things to do but nobody to share it with, right? Um, wouldn't that be awful? And I thought, hey, that's a thought. I never thought of that before. So it became a seed, like a little core to fantasies for me. Some mysterious thing has happened and everybody else is gone, and i got all these things I can do and no inhibitions, no restrictions. I can do what I want. I don't get yelled at anymore. Okay, that soon became very hollow. So I built upon that and added to it. Well, people were still around, but they were inanimate. They couldn't affect me. They couldn't hurt me. So did Ed perhaps create in his fantasies this paraphilia? consistently reinforcing it through masturbation. The brain has this reward system that reacts to pleasurable experiences by releasing dopamine. Dopamine is the feel-good chemical, but in order to continue to receive that, that good feeling, the dose must continue to increase, just like with any kind of addiction. Research has shown that the recurrent use of internet pornography leads to changes in the brain. Um, particularly troubling is the change uh, to the prefrontal cortex, it shrinks. So could young Ed's fantasies have caused a similar physiological change? Remember that Ed spoke about murders and their escalation, much like an addict would describe their increasing appetite for a drug. But what else could have contributed to this monster that Ed became? Could he possibly have had something called the warrior gene? So what's the warrior gene? Well, let's do a quick review of genetics before we get there. We have like 37 trillion cells in our body, and each cell contains 23 pairs of chromosomes, and chromosomes are what carry your genetic info. One of these pairs of chromosomes are your sex chromosomes. Males are XY, females are XX. The other 22 pairs are somatic cells or somatic chromosomes, the ones that, that code for everything else. So we get one set of chromosomes from each parent. Our genetic sex is determined by our father, so mom only has X's. When a mutation occurs on the X chromosome of the male, there is no backup. Now, so what is this warrior gene? Well, addiction specialist Dr. Drew, the guy from Teen Mom, talks a lot about violence addiction in the warrior gene. I think I first heard him discuss this topic on a podcast he has with Adam Carolla. Dr. Drew, among others, has proposed that there are killer brains. Um, in fact, Henry Rollins, who is, he was the lead singer of a punk rock band in the 80s called Black Flag. Um, he also does spoken word. He's really just a most amazing person. 
He hosted a National Geographic documentary entitled Born to Rage, where he talked to various groups of violent men and then had him tested for this warrior gene. Okay, So the warrior gene leads to an increase in aggression and a decrease in um, the, the impulse control that would be present for people to keep them from, from doing something because of what the punishment might be. Finally, neuroscientist Dr. James Fallon, he's been studying the brains of psychopaths since the early 90s, and he's discovered that brain scans of violent killers exhibit a decrease in activity in the orbital cortex and the the area around the amygdala. So remember that the prefrontal cortex as well as the orbitofrontal cortex are responsible for things like impulse control. The amygdala integrates emotions and emotional behavior. And Dr. Fallon's research explores this complex, complex relationship between nature and nurture of the developing brain. He purports that there is a direct correlation between the genetics, brain damage, and environment. Makes perfect sense, right? So when a, ch- when a young child is exposed to or witnesses a violent act um, or violent acts in in real time, not on TV, not in video games, not in movies, but in actual physical presence in three dimensions, four dimensions. Um, when a young child is exposed to this kind of violence, it causes a specific type of brain damage that, when in the presence of the warrior gene, can lead to dire consequences. So, what does all of this mean? And I'll post some. I'll post some links to articles about the warrior gene, um, and I'll post a link to Born to Rage because it's a really great documentary and Henry Rollins is just so fun to watch because he's so beautiful. So what does all this mean? Well, first, the changes in the brain's makeup. Um, Some areas will increase and some decrease. Next, there's the warrior gene. So the warrior gene has been linked to violence in men and it's actually a mutation in a gene that regulates the enzyme monoamine oxidase. Well, and what that does, it's... um, the, so an enzyme is, is a type of protein that will speed up any kind of chemical reaction. And the monoamine oxidase, it's the MAOA gene, monoamine oxidase actually um, has an impact on serotonin reuptake. Okay? So in sociopathic or psychopathic males, they have less gray matter in their frontal lobes, and gray matter is lousy with neuron cell bodies, Um, And a decrease in its volume means a decrease in the volume of neurons. These men have a mutation in the monoamine oxidase. So the monoamine oxidase breaks down those chemicals that are associated with aggression, like serotonin. And this results in a low expression of monoamine oxidase A, which slows slows the breakdown of neurotransmitters like serotonin, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Remember, dopamine's the feel-good. Serotonin helps to uh, prevent... Uh, depression and anxiety, epinephrine and norepinephrine are part of the sympathetic nervous system. So MAOA is an enzyme coded by the MAOA gene, and it's critical in the regulation or the breakdown of these neurotransmitters, those ones that are associated with mood, impulse control, and aggression. So serotonin, um, it comes from the comes from a amino acid called tryptophan, and It regulates mood, sexuality, sleep-wake cycles, appetite, social behavior, and affect. Epinephrine and norepinephrine regulate the body's response to stress. So epinephrine is basically your body's adrenaline. And both epinephrine and norepinephrine come from a common precursor called an amino acid called tyrosine. 
Then we have dopamine. Dopamine, we know, is our feel-good chemical. It's involved in reward-motivated behavior. So there can be variants in these dopamine receptors in, um, in these sociopathic or psychopathic males. There's something called the DAT1 gene, and this is a dopamine transporter. A mutation in this gene leads to impairment in the regulation of dopamine receptor activation. So normally, DAT1 limits the duration and the levels of dopamine. DRD2, which is dopamine receptor D2, is involved in regulating reward mediation. So a variant leads to an imbalance of hormone production, and it can also lead to drug abuse. But, but, and this is really important, this this variant must be coupled with childhood stress. Sociopathic, psychopathic males will also have a mutation in the CDH13 gene. CDH13 is a signaling molecule, and it's a gene that codes for proteins involved in the proliferation or, or making of the migration and connectivity of neurons. And this particular mutation has been linked to alcoholism, ADHD, ADD, autism, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. And in studies looking at violence and CDH13, CDH13 expression in the amygdala is deficient. Okay. Well, another possibility, and this is kind of a sort of on the um, on the fringes of, of possibility, um, Ed may have had Klinefelter syndrome. So, Klinefelter syndrome means that um, a, a male has uh, two X chromosomes and a Y chromosome. Or there's another variant, which is called 47XYY. So these are both um, chromosomal defects. In Klinefelter syndrome, uh, the individuals will have a micropenis. They'll be taller than their peers. Children with Klinefelter syndrome tend to be quiet, sensitive, unassertive. Um, But, you know, these kind of personality characteristics, of course, will vary among different individuals. There's one study, and... This was a big area of research in the 70s and 80s, but I think they I think they pretty much debunked this idea, but I thought it might be worth bringing up. In 2011, there was a Danish study that found men with Klinefelter syndrome or 47XYY exhibited a higher rate of violent crime. So Ed may have had any number of environmental or genetic malfunctions. Okay, so what's left? Well, necrophilia, right? Necrophiles are typically male. They have varied levels of intelligence. They feel sexually inadequate. They have suffered head trauma. And there are even studies that assert that many necrophiliacs suffer from um, uh, anosmia, which means they can't smell or they're not put off by things that smell disgusting. Well, Ed Kemper is an interesting case because he has always been very open and willing to talk about his life in crimes. The problem is, that we have no idea what of his stories are true um, because he is a narcissist and many of his stories have changed over the years. So Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer, a real doozy of a serial killer. Um, Check out my website for more information, readings, that sort of thing if you're interested in learning more about Big Ed Kemper. So join me for the next series, um, which will be tackling Jeffrey Dahmer. Again, another super 
interesting, very well-studied serial killer who has a lot of the same, um, who had a lot of the same paraphilias as Ed Kemper. So these series will come out on a fairly regular basis, but it won't be every week or every two weeks. It'll probably be once a month, a, a series of two to three episodes on a particular serial killer will come out. You can follow me on Twitter, um, Facebook, Instagram, most of your social media platforms at SKB Pod for Serial Killer Brain Pod. Uh, you can check out the website at www.skbpod.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you use um, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, um, Podcast Republic, any of these. You should be able to subscribe to the podcast. Take a minute, rate and review it, so that way more people can find out about the podcast. And if you enjoy this, um, please check out my other podcast, Water You Killing Me For. And that's a podcast that explores murder and mayhem on the water. Until next time, thank you so much for joining me on my quest to understand evil.
The days are getting shorter, and you can feel it in the air. Yes, it's that time of year. Pumpkin is finally back at Dunkin'. It's the cozy you've been craving all summer long, now in your cup at Dunkin'. Pick up all of your pumpkin favorites, like the signature pumpkin spice ice latte, or a pumpkin ice coffee, and bakery items like pumpkin donuts and muffins. Sip into something comfortable to celebrate the start of cozy season. Use the Dunkin' app for contactless ordering. America runs on Dunkin'. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber, signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Touch-free QR code payments. No seller fees until 2021. Not applicable to PayPal here transactions. Other fees may apply. Shop safe with PayPal.